I realize that some of you won't be old enough to remember this, which is unbelievable, but on the 24th of September 2002, the then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom made a significant speech in the House of Commons. He said it was imperative for Britain to join America and invade Iraq. Saddam Hussein had to be removed. Now, if you remember that season, you'll remember that in the aftermath of that speech, the UN sent weapons inspectors to Iraq looking for evidence that Saddam Hussein was in possession of weapons of mass destruction. Well, did you know that was not the first time people went to Iraq looking for a weapon of mass destruction? For 3,500 years earlier, people went to Iraq looking not for a bomb or a chemical or biological weapon of warfare, but looking for the prophet Balaam, who lived in what is modern-day Iraq. He lived near the uh, river Euphrates, and he was known in his day to be more dangerous than an army because he could pronounce a curse upon a nation that would see their demise. And so the king of Moab, Moab and his allies, the, the Midianites, sent messengers to Iraq looking for Balaam so that he could pronounce an enemy, a, a curse on their enemy, Israel. Hence the reason the title of our sermon this morning is A Curse Sought. As we look at this chapter, we're going to look at it in two sections, verses 1 through 21. And in this opening scene, we have a fearful king who wants to enlist the help of a false prophet to thwart the good purposes of God. And then in verses 22 through verse 35, we have our glorious God who shows himself to be sovereignly in control over all things, working out his good purposes for his beloved and blessed people. So with that in mind, let's pick things up in verse 1 of chapter 22. And the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. If you were here last Sunday morning, you'll remember that at the end of chapter 2, we only touched on it last week, but the second generation of God's people were going forward in faith, and God gave them victory in all of their battles. And in the previous chapter, they've just defeated their enemies, the Amorites. And so here they are, and they find themselves moving closer and closer to the promised land, and they encamp in the plains of Moab, just, just next to the Jordan, across from Jericho. And we're told in verses 2 and 3 that when the king of Moab, and indeed the entire nation of Moab, saw this vast encampment, they were terrified. Look at what it says, verse 2. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with the fear of the people of Israel. 
They were terrified because they knew what Israel had just done to their enemies, the Amorites. And so get this, the the Moabites, who are terrified of the Israelites, immediately turn to their neighbors, the Midianites, and they put the fear of Israel into them. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And so this chapter begins with a note of panic, fear, anxiety, worry. Now, there is what one commentator calls a delicious irony that runs through this chapter. You see, the Moabites had nothing to fear. I don't know if you know this, but the Moabites were Israel's hillbilly relatives. The the, the Moabites lived in the hill country. They were descendants of Lot. And God had made it very clear to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9. Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land. So get this, the Moabites were scared of something that was only a hypothetical situation that they'd conjured up in their mind. Now, lest we stand or sit in judgment of the Moabites, you and I do this all the time. We get worried. We get anxious about hypothetical situations that we conjure up in our imaginations. We invent them. They fill us with fear, dread, and panic, all the while more often than not, that, those things we worry about and are anxious about never come to pass. It's a plague of anxiety. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, anxiety does nothing to rob tomorrow of its sorrows. It only robs today of its strength. So here was Balak, the king of Moab, the whole nation. They were wasting their emotional energy with unnecessary mental torture, thinking that the Israelites would do battle with them. Now in response, do you know what Moab does? He doesn't get his army out and he doesn't get his, uh, the combined army of the Midianites out and say, let's go to war. No, 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 no. He, he says, let's send a delegation to find Balaam. Balaam, we know, was a man of great international reputation. In fact, it was in 1967, there was an archaeological discovery made near the Jordan. They found a fragment from a temple wall. that They dated the fragment. It was 700 years after Balaam had lived, and it said his name on it. He was a man of great international reputation. His, His name lived long in the memory of people. And what he was known for was as, as a prophet, as a seer. People would consult him for divination, for, for um, the occult. He, he could pronounce blessings or curses. He could consult the dead. He could practice in pagan rites, not just of one nation, but of many nations and their gods. He was, what I said at the start of the service, a, a we- at the start of the sermon, a weapon of mass destruction. And so Balak sends messengers to Balaam. Now, just listen very carefully to the message. Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cut, verse 5, they cover the face of the earth and they are dwelling opposite me. 
Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. So the Moabites only hope of overcoming the Israelites was Balaam. And by summoning Balaam, the Moabites and the Midianites were setting themselves against the Lord and against his people and against the promises that the Lord had made to his people. Do you remember what God promised Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3? I will bless those who you bless, and I will curse those who curse you. Without knowing it, the Moabites and the Midianites were putting themselves under a curse of their own. One of the things we need to know is that God's purposes stand firm for all of his people in all generations. And what we have here is what probably the, the, the Moabites and the Midianites thought was going to be the ultimate showdown. They would get Balaam to pronounce a curse on God's people. Little did they know God's people were blessed by God and they themselves would receive God's curse. Now, this is what happens next. This delegation, they arrive at Balaam's house. Now, just to picture it for a moment, and they say, we've come here from the king of Moab. And we've come here because we want you to come with us to pronounce a curse. And we've got a lot of money to pay for you. Now, if someone came to your house this evening and said, I want you to pray a curse on my enemy, you would say no. If they said, I've got a lot of money, you would still say no, I hope. (laughs) What you wouldn't do is invite them into your home. But look at what verse 8 says. And Balaam said to the delegation from the Moabites and Midianites, lodge here tonight. Now, you need to understand in ancient culture, to invite someone into your home was you wanted to have fellowship with them. You wanted to enjoy intimacy of relationship with them. And he says to them, come, stay with me tonight, and I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Now, the big question that creates great confusion as we walk through this chapter was, was Balaam a prophet of the Lord or was he a pagan prophet? And it's really, in some ways, hard to answer that question when you're working through this passage in your own. Just notice that in verse 8, when he mentions the Lord, he mentions God's personal name. It's Lord. It's Yahweh. And then people will point out very quickly, not only does he mention the covenant name of God, but when he speaks to God, God speaks back to him. So clearly he must have had a a relationship with God. But just one thing to note, when God speaks back to him, it is not the personal name of God. It is the generic name of God, Elohim, that speaks back. It's God says, not as when Aaron or Moses speak to God, the Lord says to them. And so I want to suggest to you that Balaam is not a true prophet of the Lord. 
He's not an orthodox follower. He's got a mishmash of religions. He would do anything for the Midianite gods. He'd do anything for the Moabite gods. He'd do anything for Israel's God. He would do anything for anybody as long as there's money. Hold that thought. And so he goes upstairs and he speaks to the Lord. And verse 9, God speaks back to him and says to him, Who are these men with you? Now I've got a question about God's question. Why does God ask Balaam something he knows the answer to? Like God's omniscient. He knows who these men are. He doesn't need Balaam to tell him. Well, this is a key thing to hold in your mind as you study the Bible. Anytime God asks a question of someone, it's not for God's benefit. It's for their benefit. So remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam sins. And God says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? God doesn't ask that because God doesn't know that. God doesn't ask that for his own benefit. God asks that for Adam's benefit. He wants Adam to confess his sin. He wants Adam to own up to his wrongdoing. So when God said to Balaam, who are these men? It was because God wanted Balaam to reflect on who it was who'd come to him. Were these messengers of God? Were these enemies of God? Balaam should have known that these men and their message have come to him and they said, if he'd known the scriptures, he would have known that the Israelites could never attack the Moabites. But notice Balaam's response to God's question, verses 10 and 11. Balaam then gives God the message. Now in verses In verse 11, it is a carefully edited version of the message he received from Balak's messengers. So if you were to compare verses 5 to 6 with verses 10 and 11, you would see that verses 5 and 6 are much more detailed. Can you spot what is left out of his presentation of the messenger's message? I'll tell you. Balaam omitted the fact that Israel had settled next to Balak but had not attacked him. That's significant. The second thing he omitted was Balak's flattery of him that he had the power to bless and to curse. Now, listen, Balaam's concealment is now in stark contrast to the Lord's clearest crystal answer. Verse 12. You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. In other words, Genesis 12, 3 stands, God's people are blessed. You don't don't curse the blessed people of God. And so this drama is now set up for this tension. You've got the demands of Balak and you've got the commands of God. Who's Balaam going to obey? Verse 13, Balaam rose early in the morning and said to the princes, go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Now, if you were reading this on your own, you'd think to yourself, Balaam must be a true prophet of God. Because he responds by saying, go, get out of here. The Lord's refused me to go. Now, do you notice what he's omitted to mention? 
The key detail that the Lord has just said to him is, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. That's not a small, insignificant detail. That's a major detail. And he doesn't tell the messengers that. In fact, see when he says to them, for the Lord has refused me to go with you. You know, you know when you were a kid, your friend would come to your door, say, you want to come out to the park and play? And you'd have to say, I can't. My mom and dad won't let me go out to play until my homework is done. You know what you were really saying to your friend? I'd love to come out and play, but my miserable parents won't let me go. That's what Balaam's saying here. I'd love to go with you guys, but the Lord, he's the one who's refused me. So look at what happens next, verse 14. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Now again, you remember when you were a kid? I've got loads of things for being a child this morning, right? Remember there was that game? Uh, it's got different names. Whispers, broken telephone. Let me explain it. The teacher would sit you down in a line or in a circle and they would say, I'm going to whisper a message into your ear. And then you're going to pass it on to the next person and they're going to pass it on to the next person. And then when it gets to the last person, they're going to stand up and say the message. And almost inevitably, when the last child stood up and said the message, it had it was nothing like the message that the teacher had originally whispered into your ear. Well, that's kind of what happens here. God had said to Balaam, you shall not go. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Balaam just says back, I'm not allowed to come with you. So the messengers go back to uh, Balak and they say to him, Balaam refuses to come with us. Balak hears it and he thinks to himself, this is just a negotiation terms. He wants more money. I understand how he, what this man works, so I'm going to sweeten the pot. I'm going to send even more honorable men and I'm going to give him even more money. Now let's see what he does. So let's pick things up in verse 15. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number, more honorable than these, and they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. Now, in the news the last couple of weeks, there's been a politician in the news, and there's one thing about this politician that's been in the news in his trial is that you can never trust what he says. He never means what he says. He doesn't say what he means. And politicians, they're wordsmiths. And sometimes in politicians, you know, when they're, they're, they're acting on behalf of the people, they know how to say the right religious things. So what Balaam says next is, this is, this is an, an easy trap. You could read this and think, this man must be a true prophet of God, because look at what he says in verse 18. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. Now, now surely, that, that's incredible. More honorable men come to him, more money's on the table, and he says, no, couldn't do it. I, 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 I must not go beyond the command of the Lord. And you're thinking for just one minute, what a noble man. What a godly man. That's what his words reveal. But just at that moment, his true colors begin to shine through. Look at verse 19. 
So you too, this is Balaam speaking to these messengers, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Here Balaam gives the game away. Everything he's just said, he didn't mean. Someone comes to your door today and says, I want you to put a curse on my enemy. You say, no, I'll give you loads of money. No, they go away, they come back, and they say, well, you put a curse on my enemy. You say, no, no, you don't understand. I've got all the money in the world. You say, why don't you come in and I'll go upstairs and I'll pray about it. I'll think about it. You know what you really want? It's the money. Now, do you know how we know this to be true? It's because Balaam's mentioned three times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 2. He's mentioned in June, Jude verse 11. He's mentioned when Jesus speaks to the churches in Revelation in chapter 2 verse 14 and 15. And do you know what it says every time about Balaam? He was a man who loved doing wrongdoing for gain. He was a lover of money. He was wicked at heart. Just before we move on from this point, it is so important that we realize that it's easy with your words to sound spiritual. It's easy to give the impression to other people that you're godly. But you know what the real test is? What do your actions reveal about who you are? It's easy to come to church on a Sunday, sing songs passionately, listen to a sermon, speak spiritually. But what do your actions Monday through Saturday reveal about you? Do your actions line up with your words? Are you someone who, who is expressly committed to, to living out the will of God? Or are you always looking for a way out to wiggle out from God's will? To make God's word suit you because you really want gain of something else? I look at verses 20 to 21. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, and this is really confusing, right? If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. And the confusion there is God has just said to him, you can't go with the men. And now he says, go with the men. Now, there's a way you could read this, and it's actually a conditional statement where God's saying, if you go with these men, you, you need to go and only do what I have told you to do. Or, and I think this is the most likely interpretation, it's not that God's changed his mind, it's just that God's been faithful to his character. And, and this, is, this is a really helpful point in terms of how we understand life. God, we've been learning in Romans chapter 1, when he acts in judgment, one of his ways is to hand us over to our sin, to give us what we want. We want to sin, well, God permits us. Go on, have what you want. And I think this is a case of that. Balaam has been handed over to his sin. God's been faithful to his character. You're going to oppose me. Your priorities are not for me. Okay, then have what you want. And here's why I think that's a helpful point. Never ever buy the lie that says an open door to do what you want is God's will for you. Especially if you think the open door 
is open, but you kind of need to wiggle out of God's command. You kind of need to adjust God's command to, to, to suit what you really want. That's what Balaam did here. God didn't let him go because he approved it, but actually because God was giving him over to sin. In this moment, Balaam must have thought himself as a free agent, able to control his own destiny, and able to have the privilege of getting lots of money, and even pronouncing a curse on God's people. End of section one, beginning of section two. We pick things up in verses 22. And here we come to this scene where we see our glorious God, much shorter point, shows himself to be sovereign, in control over all things, working out his good purpose for his beloved and blessed people. This is why I think it's definitely an act, it's an action of judgment on God's part. Verse 22 says this, tells us God's anger was kindled because he went. And God's response is, the angel of the Lord comes and he stood in the way of Balaam going to King Balak. Now Balaam was riding on a donkey. And this is the infamous incident of the talking donkey. Now I do need to say this, right, just by introduction to this section, is that there's only one other occasion in scripture where an animal speaks. It's Genesis 3, the talking serpent. And some people come to the Bible and they just laugh. Like if you, the only other time I know of a talking donkey is Shrek. And so if it's from a cartoon, then surely is, it, is the Bible on the same level as a cartoon? Well, it's not the stuff of children's cartoons. This is actually meant to be a rather humorous story. But it's making a very serious point, as we're going to see. But if God is the one who's able to create this world in six days, he's able to send ten plagues on the Egyptians, he's able to release his people, enable them to walk through the Red Sea on dry land, he's able to feed them food from heaven, and he's able to make water come from a rock, then making a donkey talk is nothing, right? Now, now the whole situation with this talking donkey is, 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 is to expose the foolishness of Balaam. Everything that Balaam is unable to do, the donkey's able to do. And, and, and it's a, it a spectacular scene now. It's structured in a really careful way. Three times the angel blocks away. Three times the donkey sees the angel. Three times the donkey responds because of the angel in the way with a drawn sword. Three times Balaam beats his donkey. And so you get to verse 28, and the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. And she says, and just, point, just to point out, it's a female donkey. Now, in Scripture, we mainly read about male donkeys. This is only to add to the humor of this whole situation. A female talking donkey responds to Balaam. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, I know this seems ludicrous, but remember this, this passage is filled with delicious irony. Verse 29, Balaam's response, because you have made a fool of me. Now, little does Balaam know that he is the fool and the donkey is revealing this. And the donkey said to Balaam, 
Last question, is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. You see, the donkey could see what Balaam couldn't see, the angel of the Lord standing in the way. Balaam was this great prophet, this great seer. People traveled all across the world to come and pay him to do things for them And yet Balaam couldn't even see the angel of the Lord standing in front of him, but his donkey could. Balaam gets so angry in this story, he beats his donkey, but he can't kill it. He says, if I had a sword, I would have killed you. The irony is, is that when the angel speaks and opens Balaam's eyes to see, he says, if it were not for your donkey... Saving your life, I would have killed you and saved the donkey's life. And everything, Balaam, this superstar prophet, is spiritually blind. He's unable to inflict harm. The irony is he's on his way to try and pronounce a curse on Israel to get money, but he can't even inflict harm on his donkey. It's so humorous, it's so laughable, but here lies the wisdom of God. Here's the deadly, serious point. God wanted Balaam, and he wants every single one of us to see this. The folly of our foolishness. And the way that God does that, he gets a donkey to speak. He gets a donkey to see what we cannot see. He gets a donkey to save Balaam's life. Now, just so you don't miss it, the gospel is here in full view. See, the donkey saved Balaam's life. The angel of the Lord had his sword drawn to put him to death. And you know, God didn't save us by means of a donkey, He saved us by means of the Son. And his son didn't prevent us from meeting the judgment of God by just moving out the way. He prevented us facing the judgment of God by being the one who received the judgment of God in himself. The sword of God's judgment fell on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we who deserve death wouldn't face death. Do you know what's fascinating is that the donkey's obedience in avoiding the angel of the Lord was because the donkey was obeying his master. He was trying to protect his master. And the reason that Balaam was on this road, on this path in the first place, was because he was disobeying the Lord. And so once again, you see the folly of Balaam. Now, It's in light of this that we read Balaam's confession, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And here's what we see. God, through the angel of the Lord, speaks to him and says, no, you're not going to turn back. You're going to go forward. And you're going to do only what I tell you to do. And I want you to see this. Balaam was on his way as a weapon of mass destruction to pronounce a curse on God's people. 
God stops them in his tracks. And God's going to turn this whole situation for unexpected blessing on God's people. But that's not the incredible thing about this passage. The incredible thing about this passage is God's people, Israel, are blissfully unaware that this is even happening. They're, they're down at the River Jordan, playing with their sons and daughters, playing whispers. They're down in the river, fishing and eating food, celebrating the victory in battle, blissfully unaware that God is working all things together for good because he loves them and they're called according to his purposes. God is doing far more abundantly, immeasurably, than they could have ever asked or imagined. They don't know that curse was coming their way. But because of God's work, blessing, abundant blessing was going to come their way. William Cowper captured this beautifully in his hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. You know that the answer to our anxiety and worry is to know that our lives are in God's hands. And in all things, God is working together for good for those who are loved and called according to his purposes. And if you need to be convinced of that, that's the cross. Where does God show that in the most evil, his son being crucified, the Lord of glory being put to death, he takes the curse so that you and I can receive the blessing of salvation. Do you know that right now, right this moment, God is doing 10,000 things that you and I are unaware of? Do you know there are circumstances in your life that, that could have happened to you, maybe should have happened to you, but God, God worked all things together for good for you. Right now, we will get to eternity and we will discover that our God's good purposes was he blesses those who are his. And he curses those who curse his people. You know, right now there, there are people who are going after God's people in, in persecuted lands. And we look on and we think they're winning. But little do they know that ultimately... The victory will be revealed always to be the Lord's. The blessing will be his people's. And those who defy God, those who disobey God, those who go after their sinful gain, they will receive the eternal curse of God. And so, so as we come to the end of this, there's a call to faith. Look to Christ, the Savior, who took your judgment, who was cursed so that you could be blessed. And those of us who are Christians, trust in God. He's working out his good purposes for you. Now and for all time. How good is the God we adore? Let's pray.